for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, we all cope with a certain amount of clutter, don't we? Why do we accumulate it in the first place? How does it affect our mental health, our anxiety levels? And what are the best ways to clear through all that clutter? Well, one of the very few people out there who research the psychology of clutter joins me to clear up all those questions. We head to a wildlife park in England that is coping with a bit of a parrot problem these days. A group of their African greys that can really mimic words and tones uh, swear like sailors, including telling visitors where to go. They're a big hit with the staff, but they've been trying to find a way to stem all that salty language for quite a while now. Find out why their latest plan could mean sweet harmony or create an even bigger symphony of potty mouth parrots. The fate of the 1845 Franklin Expedition to find the Northwest Passage has fascinated people for generations. The wreckage of the two ships involved were finally found off the coast of northern Nunavut in the past decade. Now those ships are being explored and they're revealing even more secrets. We find out what they are. But first, a who's who of hockey is gathered in Toronto for the annual NHL All-Star Game this weekend as a sexual assault case against five members of the 2018 Canadian men's junior team, including four NHLers, is casting a long shadow over the events, the league, and the sport. So are those in charge of the game taking this seriously enough? We ask. Let's start tonight with hockey. Uh, All eyes, of course, will be on London, Ontario on Monday as the court process and the sexual assault cases of five members of the 2018 Canadian Men's World Junior Hockey Team will get underway. Uh, Michael McLeod, Dylan Dubé, Carter Hart, Cal Foote and Alex Formanton, all current or former NHL players, were each charged with one count of sexual assault. McLeod faces an additional offense of being party to sexual assault, all turned themselves into police in London over the past week, of course, the players deny any wrongdoing and say they'll defend themselves uh, when, the, when the opportunity arises. Uh, London police, as, as mentioned, are also expected to provide more details about the investigation that led to the charges at a press conference on Monday. Uh, now, the five men have been accused. You probably know this case, but I'll go over the details again a bit. The five men have been accused of sexually assaulting a woman identified in court documents only as EM in a London hotel room following a Hockey Canada fundraising event uh, back in 2018. EM reported the alleged attack to police immediately, but an initial investigation was closed without charges in February of 2019. It was reopened in 2022 when the incident became public, that after EM filed a $3.5 million lawsuit against Hockey Canada, the Canadian Hockey League, and eight unidentified players that Hockey Canada reportedly settled out of court. Uh, All five players uh, that have been charged have been given indefinite leaves of absence from their teams. Uh, And as a who's who of hockey gathers in Toronto for tomorrow's All-Star Game, uh, the case against the five players and how it was handled within the hockey world is also front and center. Today, Commissioner Gary Bettman publicly answered questions for the first time, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, uh, saying he will wait to see how the case plays out before deciding how the league will act. We didn't, while we were doing our investigation, want to interfere with what the London Police Service was doing, and we're not going to do anything to interfere or influence the judicial proceedings. We're all going to have to see how that plays out. And as I said in my remarks, we will then be in a position to respond appropriately, which we will do. The NHL has been conducting its own investigation. Apparently that wrapped up last year. The results, though, have not been made public while this uh, legal case goes on. Uh, And Bettman pointed out that he had used words such as abhorrent, reprehensible, horrific, and unacceptable to describe the alleged behaviors in the past. He also says the allegations do not mean that there is a systemic problem in the sport of hockey, saying he thinks the majority of the league's players act appropriately. I I think any characterization that this is a systemic issue is both inaccurate and unfair. 99.9% of players, certainly in our league, conduct themselves appropriately. Uh, Hockey players and hockey families throughout our ecosystem, throughout the world at all levels, overwhelmingly conduct themselves appropriately. Gary Bettman there. Well, joining me now with more on this is Taylor McKee. He's an assistant professor of sports management at Brock University. Taylor, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Maybe just a reaction, first of all, because we really hadn't heard Gary Bettman answer questions. He had made some public statements in the past, but we hadn't heard him answer questions about this. What did you make of what he had to say today? Yes, it's always a pleasure, isn't it, hearing Gary Bettman speak? He always fills you with a love of, of the sport itself. Yes, it's 
it's certainly a situation in which I think a lot of hockey fans um, are a little disappointed, and certainly in the words that uh, the Batman was his choice of words there, his characterization of the situation, and again his lack of of, of responsibility that I think that would be the best way to describe the way he uh, he spoke there. Uh, when he mentions the fact that, you know, you know, by the way, I used to say all these things where, where I've already told you that I thought this was bad, but also I don't think it's representative. And also I don't think it's frankly, really even the, the NHL's fault. I mean, it's really conflicting communication being done here. I mean, again, this is crucial to remind ourselves that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say things like, well, you know, it's important that we let the process play out. And that's absolutely true. But the NHL has embroiled themselves in this scandal in a, in a way that they really did not need to. I mean, this was a way in which this could have been a Hockey Canada related issue. But when they said they were conducting an internal investigation and gave the public several due dates and said, OK, we're going to hand it out before the Stanley Cup is given. We're going to release the results of the investigation uh, before the draft. We're going to release the results of the investigation before the season started. And all that happened over the past summer and in the fall. And then when people, I think, rightfully were start asking questions, these sort of indignant responses that they were given, and even today, this sort of notion that, like, well, you know, what are, what's none of your business? I mean, they were the ones issuing the communication that said this was on its way, this was coming. And then for them to say, like, we didn't want to interfere with the police investigation, well, it's one investigation as a whole, essentially. Here we have the criminal matter, and we have the matter of the fact that there were NHL players embroiled in a criminal case. So... Again, he's hiding behind a lot of the sort of uh, legalistic definitions of, of what he's allowed to say in this way. And I think it's just disappointing because it's a lack of accountability. And yet, um, I was trying to figure out if we've heard from Hockey Canada since uh, we knew that these charges were being laid. And specifically since all five players were, were then officially identified. I, I, don't, I couldn't find a thing. We haven't heard anything from Hockey Canada. It, it's, it's relatively unclear in terms of, we, we know essentially who's on the website in terms of who's leading Hockey Canada, but it's hard to tell who's going to be speaking for Hockey Canada at this point. And there's certainly a game of hot potato going on there because whoever's going to speak at this point uh, can credibly say that they were not you know, involved when, when this was going on when it first happened and when it first broke and even when the scandal erupted and when Hockey Canada spoke in front of members of Parliament. Uh, that being said, uh, certainly this is their scandal as well. And I think that's one of the most perplexing parts about this whole situation is that this started with a scandal that it involved specifically Hockey Canada and Nike to an extent as well and has ballooned now to embroil the NHL. Now, the way in which the NHL players took leaves of absences from their teams, uh, and as Bettman alluded to today, he doesn't anticipate that they're going to play during ju- these judicial proceedings, which, I mean, as, as Rick West had pointed out, uh, criminal attorneys have advised that it's probably going to be 2026 when this uh, sees a courtroom. So essentially here, now the NHL, is, this is an NHL matter because these are their players uh, that are essentially now uh, without teams and were essentially whisked away without answering any questions about this uh, before it all happened. And throughout the entire process, we were told, you know, don't, don't jump to conclusions, don't jump to conclusions. Um, who knows if this is even an issue that we need to worry about. But certainly, again, Hockey Canada's place in this, in this uh, scandal has not ended and, and once again, it would be nice at some point if someone would stand up from the league, from Hockey Canada, or anyone at all to say, you know what, even if I wasn't there, we're going to be better moving forward. This is our fault. Let's do better as an organization and as a sport. Yeah. I mean, you know, innocent till proven guilty, obviously. I think that's an important thing to remember. But what struck me about this is that I've seen other leagues do it for other in other circumstances um, around the world, is that in this case, both the NHL and Hockey Canada could have found a way to address this issue without necessarily interfering in the case. And I don't feel like they've done that at all yet. And this is, they, they could have made a very pronounced statement about, you know, intolerance of sexual assault in sport, right? Uh, intolerance of, of, the, of that kind of behavior from their, from their athletes, wide, you, know, gr- you know, writ large, not, not this case. But we haven't seen that either yet. It feels like they're still kind of lawyering around it and kind of hiding behind the stuff, as they always have. Absolutely. And that's a great point. And even furthermore, they're not only just sort of avoiding it, they're actively combating that issue. They're saying things like, well, when Hockey Canada, when, the, when who was representing Hockey Canada at that point stood in front of the members of parliament, they said, hey, we think we're being unfairly picked on here. We're, we're being held to an unfair standard. Um, there's Gary Bettman saying, we don't think it's unfair and, 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 and untrue that if you were saying that this is a systemic issue. I mean, it, whether it's Sheldon Kennedy, whether it's whomever from inside of this the league with a, with a deep-seated experience in these issues, that has said over and over again, this is not necessarily an NHL problem, but it is a systemic problem within hockey. I, mean, I think it's incredibly disrespectful, frankly, to say that it's not 
a part of the system of hockey itself. Because, Gary, you were saying it's not representative, but these are five of your players. So I'm, I beg to differ. I mean, it is. It literally is representative of your league. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say that these players don't represent the NHL and then also afford them the protections of the NHL when it came to sort of shuttling them away. But you mentioned that there are other ways they could have done this in terms of not interfering. Absolutely. Absolutely. They could have stood right away and said, if these players, anyone who's implicated in this will not play in the NHL, their skates aren't going to touch the ice, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Absolutely. But a way in which they're treating these players, they're essentially telegraphing. They think they're guilty. And this is a way of shielding them from, from accountability. So if they truly believed in this until proven guilty, they would ensure that they would have all the opportunity in the world to prove their innocence, but that has essentially not happened. This is after, of course, after we already had a hockey canon civil settlement on this exact same issue. So, I mean, clearly people within these organizations and, and the leagues themselves know far more than they're claiming to know right now about the details of this case. Taylor McKee is with us this half hour, Assistant Professor of Sports Management at Brock University. We're talking about uh, the NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman today. Uh, it's All-Star Weekend, of course, in Toronto. So a who's who of hockey is there, including the commissioner, answering questions publicly for the first time about uh, the sexual assault charges mm-hmm. five, filed against five uh, players from the 2018 World Junior Champion World junior team, including four who are currently in the NHL, one who had been in the NHL as recently as last year. And so they've, they've had an investigation underway for a while. I think it wrapped up, but we haven't seen the report yet. He was saying that the NHL uh, won't, become, won't be getting involved in this until the legal process is done. Um, Taylor, when we look at sort of the, the fallout from this, I, I wasn't overly surprised to see that a lot of sponsors return after all that happened a couple of years ago, that a lot of sponsors sort of headed, started heading back to Hockey Canada of late. Is, what's happening with that now? Well, it's an excellent question. I think that, you know, the earnestness of their commitment to leave the sport of hockey in Canada, um, I think was one that uh, I think even at the time people had their doubts about whether this represented, you know, a permanent cessation of, of sponsorship arrangements. I will say Nike, um, that, that was a big one. That, the ending of sponsorship with Hockey Canada, that, that was a, a situation I still think uh, both parties benefited from, given the fact that Nike was not only, um, you know, a longtime partner of Hockey Canada, but also in, in some ways involved in this scandal itself. Um, so there have been lasting sort of effects here. The question is, how much pressure are these companies under to, to cease their, their relationships? That's really essentially what most of these sponsorship relationships boil down to is, you know, are we getting any value from this type of arrangement or has this actually become a liability for us? And I don't know if, if the public sort of appetite for distancing themselves from Hockey Canada itself and that logo uh, has really, really persisted throughout this entire situation. That may change. I mean, because we have been basically told here recently that we should buckle up for not, you know, the next couple months, but for the next couple of years uh, with this scandal. And there's going to be some very, very, very uncomfortable um, conversations that are going to be had, I think, at, at, a, at the national level, certainly. But I think once this case starts drawing eyes uh, down south as well, I think we could see a lot more media attention. And I will, again, put more pressure on sponsors and in their relationships with Hockey Canada and even possibly the NHL. Yeah. I, I, what will you be looking out for? I mean, I know you're not a criminal lawyer, but what will you be looking out for on Monday when London police start to describe what this investigation was all about? Because, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've covered a lot of these press conferences, they can sometimes be incredibly short and quite limited. So you don't actually learn much that you didn't already know. Sometimes they're not. Um, you know, this this as you're right. I mean, we could find out things sooner than later that may really change the course of, of what's happened here. Well, I would anticipate a fair amount of defensiveness uh, on the part of the London Police Department because, as you mentioned in, in the introduction here, this is a case that they had their eyes on um, back in February 19. Um, so it's it's likely that there's going to be some some level of explanation as to why it is that the case was reopened and, and pursued with this level of seriousness. Because I think there are very, very obvious questions to ask as to why, what would have changed during that period, considering the fact that we have a civil case in between, of course, different situations entirely between the civil and the criminal case. But I think the London Police Department has to do a little bit here to explain themselves as to why they've had essentially had two cracks at this. Now, of course, there's no statute of limitations on sexual assault in Canada. That's that there's excellent legal reasons for that. But what is bizarre about the situation is the fact that it, presumably with fresher evidence at the time, they had their they had a chance to really pursue this criminally from the very start, which would have avoided this entire National Hockey League situation. Um, certainly, it would have you know allowed the, the victim to receive criminal justice much, much, much quicker than this. So, I would anticipate that you're going to see a little bit of explanation more than you might traditionally see, and of course, the absolutely crushing amount of media attention that will be on them. Um, I think that, that there will be a fair amount of defensiveness and perhaps a little bit more openness than would be normal in a situation like this. 
Yeah, I, one gets the impression though that uh, I mean, I'm 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 curious to see how the NHL and Hockey Canada continue to react as this continues. I think we'll may, we may see a bit of a lull once this court date and once this press conference is done. But it'll be interesting to see if they actually make any sort of declarative statements about about this whole issue generally without actually trying to you know while still respecting uh, you know the the status of the court case. Absolutely. And you're going to have a lot of people now who are going to be very interested in the sort of due process uh, element of things here. And and my point basically is guilty, innocent, it doesn't matter in terms of the way in which the messaging of this situation was handled by the National Hockey League. I mean, the process of the courts, that will play itself out. I mean, I think that a lot of Canadians are about to learn again about the horrors of the judicial system as it relates to sexual assault cases and how difficult it can be to try and and, and produce evidence and produce testimony. It's very difficult. And I hope that's one of the things that comes from this is a recognition of how very, very, very tricky this process can be for victims. Uh, and so hopefully we get through that, that process uh, safely here. But also, uh, the same token, the way in which the National Hockey League and the Hockey Canada, but now the National Hockey League more recently, handled the, the announcement of these charges, the leaves of absences, in some cases the citing of mental health as a reason for leaving, this all was preventable, guilty or innocent. This didn't need to occur like this. So I think that's one of the most depressing parts about this uh, situation for many observers is, you know, this really has been a bungling of the messaging uh, from the very beginning, no matter what the result of the case is. Well, Taylor, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. You may remember back a decade ago, and this was huge news. It was described as one of the most important land-based archaeological finds in modern times, solving one of the great and lasting mysteries of the seas. One of the ships from that doomed Franklin expedition, the HMS Erebus, had been located uh, near Nunavut's King William, King William Island some 170 years after it and its sister ship, the HMS Terror, sank and disappeared. Everything was lost. You know, all 129 people involved were killed. Uh, they had set sail from Britain to find uh, the Northwest Passage, and it was as if they had vanished off the face of the earth. And there was no, you know, we were left to kind of fill in the blanks for years and years and years as to what may have happened. I was actually working and reporting from the UK at the time, and it was a huge deal there as well. In fact, it was such a big deal here uh, that it was the Prime Minister at the time, Stephen Harper, who actually announced the discovery. We have found one of the two Franklin Ships. Well, since then, uh, they found the other ship, as I mentioned, the HMS Terror was found, I think, in 2016, just two years later. And of course, since then, there has been extensive work. I mean, I think a lot of us sort of turned away a little bit once they had been discovered. But since then, there's been extensive work to document and catalog what's on those two shipwrecks. Uh, This past September, Again, underwater archaeologists working for Parks Canada, in close collaboration with the Inuit Historical Society, made 68 dives over a 12-day period down to the wreckage of the uh, down to the wreckage of of one of the two ships. Uh, of, and it was quite. I mean, it was to the Erebus, I should say, to the Erebus, not the Terror. Um, and they found a treasure trove of objects. So they've been detailing them, photographing them, bringing them to the surface. Of course, all these objects have been frozen in time in this chilly, chilly water, more than 150 years uh, under the surface, 170 years nearly at this point. Uh, They announced their findings last week, pistols, coins, medicine bottles, other military items, a chest located in the forecastle area uh, where most of the crew lived on the HMS Erebus, uh, all kinds of interesting stuff. So we wanted to find out more. What's been going on? What have you found? Where's it going to go? Where's it going to wind up? What's left to do? Because a decade after this unbelievable discovery, um, you know, there's still so many mysteries that this that these two shipwrecks are still offering up. There's still so many clues to the mystery that these two ships are still offering up to us. And Jonathan Moore is the manager of underwater archaeology, the underwater archaeology team at Parks Canada, one of the ones who took part in those dives last September. And he joins me now. Jonathan, thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. What a cool job. I mean, what I mean, just watching what was being done uh, uh, way up north as well. I mean, what what an interesting thing to be a part of. Yeah, it's a really interesting project where we all feel privileged to be part of this. We have been for, for quite a number of years now. We're coming up on almost 10 years since the, the discovery of Erebus. Right. Tell me a bit about what's happened since, just sort of the, the, the efforts to, the, the archaeological efforts since uh, the wreckages of, of Erebus and Terror were, were found over the last decade. Well, as I just mentioned, Erebus was found in 2014 and, mm-hmm. and Terror found uh, two years later. 
So we've done quite a lot of work uh, on both sites, more so on Erebus. Um, we had a bit of a, a break during the, the pandemic, but we've conducted site assessments of both both wrecks. So what, what we mean by that, at both sites, we've uh, surveyed them, we've recorded their exteriors, we've produced site plans, scale site plans. We've recorded them extensively with uh, photo and video. We commenced test excavation of the Erebus in 2019. And uh, we also conducted excavation in 2022 and 2023. So we've got quite a lot of work on um, on both wrecks under our belts. And we've, you know, we like to um, think that we've learned a lot more about the nuances of the uh, of the expedition and the um, certainly a lot more about the wrecks and their condition, uh, the kinds of artifacts that we will uh, we have and will find on them the kind of preservation conditions we have, which is important for us to uh, understand and um, really what it what it takes to to learn about more about the expedition from from these two uh, really fascinating shipwrecks. Yeah, Parks Canada have released videos of this, by the way. If you're curious, listeners, go have a look. Um, the, the videos are are quite quite astounding because. They're quite well-preserved. I don't know how well shipwrecks usually preserve normally, but they look quite well-preserved just based on what on the video that I, I suspect you and your team were shooting. Yeah, that's correct. They're, they're really well-preserved, especially for shipwrecks that are found in salt water. Normally, in more uh, warm, warmer or southerly water, southern waters, you will have uh, ships that are affected by shipworm, for instance, which this is this is an animal that um, will eat at uh, ship timbers and really kind of devour ship timbers. We have a lot of normally a lot of collapse of wooden wrecks that are found uh, in salt water. So it's really the absence of those shipworms in the cold water of the of the Arctic that has promoted preservation of these wrecks and. Um, yeah, Erebus is in shallower water, so it's it's more susceptible to damage from waves and um, water movement. However, Terror is uh, significantly deeper, uh, about double the depth at 24 meters, whereas Erebus is in in about 11 meters of water. So they do have really quite different levels of preservation. They're both intact, you know, bodily from like the bow to the stern. However, Erebus, all the the masts have been knocked down. The railing, or what we call the bulwark around the upper deck, is gone. Part of the stern is collapsed, but generally intact. But the terror, on the other hand, is is much better preserved and has some of the the masts are still standing. The bowsprit, which is a kind of a, a mast that projects from the, the the front or the bow of the vessel is intact a lot of the deck equipment uh, the railings the bulwark and uh importantly the stern cabin is wow. is still intact so it's it's it's, it's kind of a fairy tale wreck really uh, in terms of its condition remarkable you know, 180 years later it, it is remarkable uh, you, you talked about how, uh, the cold water preserving things what's it like to dive in i mean i i'm not a very good diver but i've done i've done it before i can't imagine what it might be like to to dip to dip a toe in the arctic in the arctic ocean yeah well it, it um, is not that different from a lot of waters around Canada. We, we've had water temperatures from about minus two to plus six on the sites. Right. So this 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 is cold water diving. In the earlier days of our our diving and work on the wrecks, we were uh, using dry suits exclusively on on uh, using scuba diving methods. So this is the typical tank strapped to your back, deep breathing from a um, a regulator. But we have since moved with our work on the Erebus to uh, using kind of more commercial surface applied diving methods where you're you're wearing a, um, a harness, you have a mask or a helmet, and you're breathing air supplied from the surface. Right. So what we can do with this method is dive uh, for hours at a time. But also with this uh, system, we can use what are called hot water suits, where we have hot water uh, fed through uh, the diving umbilical, which links the diver and the surface and provides breathing breathing air mix, but also um, allows this hot water to be sent down to a suit, which keeps us uh, okay, really nice and warm sense. and not only comfortable, but we're allowed to, we, we, we can then focus on our work. Uh, right. So diving uh, can be very cold, but on the flip side, uh, with, with this equipment we have, can be uh, actually quite uh, quite comfortable. 
you know, the, the word archaeology is in is in your title as well, or in the team's title, and, and that suggests that you have to be very delicate and very careful with this work. I, I, as challenging as that might be, uh, being underwater and so on, but you still have to treat this like it's an archaeological site, and that means a fine-tooth comb, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. We we are meticulous in our work. We're, we have to document our work as we go along, so we're doing recording. We, we, we record underwater on writing slates with pencil and plasticized paper. We're using underwater photo and video. We're doing three-dimensional recording using advanced photograph photographic methods, uh, photogrammetry, for example. We're using um, remote sensing technology. So we're using a lot of technology, but a lot of it is just careful, patient excavation using, uh, we, we have these uh, water induction dredges. They're like a underwater vacuum cleaner that allow us to very, very carefully excavate. We use um, sometimes a trowel or a spoon or even our fingertips to, to carefully excavate. And it, it may, may be a surprise to some of your listeners that a lot of the areas that we actually excavate within the, um, in, in particular in, in, in the case of the Erebus where we've begun excavation, a lot of sediment, current-borne sediment, has actually infiltrated into the wreck and it, into some of the furniture pieces, for instance, drawers that we're excavating. So these these structures are actually jam-packed with compacted sediment that we wow. have to excavate as if they're on land. So it requires a lot of dexterity, a lot of uh, careful attention to detail, and it's not completely unlike excavating on land in, in, in many respects. Jonathan Moore is manager of the underwater archaeology team at Parks Canada. We're talking about work they've been doing at the sites of the wreckages of the HMS Erebus and HMS Terror, the two ships involved in the uh, ill-fated and much speculated about the mysterious Franklin expedition. Those uh, shipwrecks were finally discovered or located again uh, in 2014 and 2016. Uh, Jonathan, what what have you found? You've, I mean, you've, there's images of it, and, and it, it's incredible because some of the stuff is so well-preserved. It looks like there was a bowl that looked like you could have bought it yesterday. But so... And but some of the stuff really is, you know, a, a look into the past. Yeah, definitely. When we're excavating, we're in a way stepping back in time. It's really, really quite remarkable to really go into these places that we've targeted for excavation and and uh, uncover these these artifacts, which which transport us back into when the ship was occupied by the men of the expedition. We have been targeting several areas within the air. Er- the wreck of the Erebus, the lower deck of the Erebus for a number of years now. The lower deck would have been the accommodation space for the um, for the crew of the expedition, divided into two main categories, officers and non-officers. Right. The officers and the petty officers had uh, separate cabins. And we have been able to uh, locate and identify some fitted furniture, which formed bunks in in two of the officers' cabins, and we've actually been able to excavate inside those compartments, essentially drawers within chest of drawers, which which, which supported a, uh, a bunk. So it's really been fascinating to be able to excavate, uncover artifacts which are in their, we believe, original locations, so we can find artifacts that are linked to those individuals we we, we uh we're working in what we believe to be the cabins of Lieutenant Levisconte and Lieutenant uh, Fairholm. So in the case of uh, Levisconte, for instance, we found some artifacts related to uh, map making and chart making, which was an important element of this expedition. And um, we, we believe that Levisconte was actually responsible for some of that work on the expedition. So this is neat uh, links between uh, the artifacts and, and and the person. In the case of uh, Fairholm, we found some fossils which we believe are um, related to either informal or formal specimen collection of, of fossils during the expedition. So these are really fascinating links to, to people. Yes. Upon the discovery of the Erebus in 2014, we observed a seaman's chest in the forward part of the vessel towards the bow, which is where the lower... Me- lower-ranking crew members, uh, sailors would have have lived. This was communal accommodation, a lot more crowded than the than the than the uh, segregated officers' accommodation. But we we spotted a seaman's chest, and it's been our intention for for quite some time to explore and excavate that chest because we 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 um, 
we felt it would give us insight into other ranks, um, non-officer ranks on, on the expedition, maybe tell us more about what, how they lived. And so the Siemens chest would have held, it was divided into, is divided into, would hold the possessions, clothing, personal possessions, maybe even the bowl you mentioned, um, some of right. the eating there was implements. A toothbrush, I think there was person. a toothbrush I saw, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And we've recovered uh, some medicinal vials, um, coins. So the, the Siemens chest gives us this glimpse into uh, the other ranks, if you will, on, right. on, on the ship. We haven't completed the excavation of the chest, but it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Where does the stuff go once you found it? What, what happens to it? And what will happen to it? Well, I can explain a little bit of the process. So we very carefully recover the artifacts. In, in raising them to the surface, we had to very carefully package them because that travel from the underwater environment, the excavated environment up to the surface is, is one that we had to be very careful of. We have a laboratory trailer on a barge, an excavation and diving support barge called the Kinnikturjewak that we uh, dive from. From the barge, they are uh, transported back to Joe Haven and then they're transported by air down to Ottawa where we have a conservation facility. And all of the artifacts throughout this process are inventoried, recorded, um, photographed, documented, and then they enter into what can be sometimes a, a fairly lengthy conservation treatment process because we, we have to uh, make sure that, you know, that the transition from uh, a waterlogged environment to a, you know, a dry environment is one that requires uh, f very f careful treatment. And after this, yeah, I gather, I gather they will be returned, right, to, to, because the Natalie Heritage Society there is also a partner with you in all of this, and it will, in fact, be preserved in the area to be shown to people who would like to come and see them eventually. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's a current uh, project underway to expand that center, the Natalie Heritage Center, and uh, a new uh, exhibit is on its way, and some of the artifacts that we have recovered will, will be on display at that center. Right. And what next then? What next for uh, for this? Because I realize these dives, I think the 68 dives were back in September of 2023. What, what's the next chapter of the story? Yeah, well, around this time, we're still, you know, digesting the information and the, and the artifacts and, and, and the, the data we've collected. We will, you know, in, in the coming months, start to come up with a plan of of attack, what we, uh, what we aim to do archaeologically. There's a lot of logistical preparations that we have to uh, sort out. So I imagine in, in, in due course later on in the year, we'll, we'll be able to, we'll be in a position to announce what we have in, in, in store for yeah. uh, uh, 2024. I have to remind myself sometimes we're talking about the Franklin Franklin expedition because it, throughout my childhood and into adulthood, this was such a mystery. And here you are diving down and, and checking it all out firsthand. Jonathan, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Just would like someone to talk to. Join the club. What? He said join the club. He's intelligent. He can talk. Speak. Now, don't you think if we had an animal with that kind of intelligence, somebody here would have noticed? You can't talk. Of course I can talk. Then why are you not? Talking just gets you in trouble. How you say that? It's a long story. There you have it. That's a movie called Polly from 1998. And I, I, you're going to realize why I played this for you. It's about a wisecracking and disobedient talking parrot named Polly. But it's that last thing that he says that really rings true for our next guest. Talking only gets a parrot into trouble. And that's the case with a flock of parrots at a wildlife park in England in Lincolnshire, uh, Boston. It's about 200 kilometers north of London. These are African gray parrots. They really do have, Polly, by the way, I think was a blue crown conure. They, these are African gray parrots. They're a bit different. They really do have this unbelievable ability to repeat words and even mimic the tones of the voices they hear. So they don't even pick up, they not only pick up what's being said, they also say it in the same voice so you can tell where they picked it up from. And this is important for this story, by the way. Uh, so you can imagine they're prone to picking up even some of the more off-color language that we all tend to use, some of the more salty language, swear words, in other words. Uh, some owners even teach them to them for fun, of course. Well, this um, 
wildlife park is also a parrot refuge. So they take in parrots when people can't care for them. Uh, and they took in a whole bunch of them in the early days of the pandemic. And amongst them were five from different parts of the UK. So they all came with different, slightly different sounding accents. Um, they all swore like sailors, all of them. So and this is back in 2020. Uh, soon they were swearing at visitors, right? So, I mean, it was a bit of a novelty. So if people liked it. They, it actually got a lot of publicity for the wildlife park, but they've kind of been trying to fix it ever since, right? So they've done a couple of different things. It hasn't really worked out. In fact, the original ones were Billy, Tyson, Eric, Jade, and Elsie. Uh, those were the five. So they spent some time in isolation. Well, now it turns out there are eight of them who swear, including, I think, a Sheila who swears a lot, and another Eric and another parrot as well. Uh, so, so they're trying to figure out what they can do now with this. So needless to say, this again has gotten a lot of coverage. Uh, ITV in Britain went out to have uh, to check out on the uh, on the foul-mouthed parrots uh, to see if they would squawk any expletives at them and uh, have a listen. I hear that you three are troublemakers. Is that right? Are you a troublemaker? <laughs> Are you a troublemaker? Now, I don't know exactly what that parrot said, but if you have to bleep a bird to play it on television or on radio like here, well, you know it's something not so great, right? Um, so the Wildlife Park are trying something new. They're going to integrate the eight salty, salty-languaged parrots with the 92 others, I believe, whose language, we shall we say, is a bit more on the family-friendly side. So the idea is that this will kind of teach these parrots to not use the language as often, right? It'll kind of, you know, kind of bring them down, bring down the language a little bit. So here's the deal. Will they wind up with perfect parrot harmony or a massive chorus of cursing pirates or parrots, rather? Parrots, not pirates. Uh, Steve Nichols is the chief executive of the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park and Parrot Sanctuary. And he joins me now. Steve, thank you. That's okay, sir. Uh, remarkable how much this. I mean, if you Google this, you realize it's been seen around the around the world at this point, right? It's phenomenal. It's just very. It's very difficult when, uh, obviously, mobile phones today show you where the phone calls coming from. Right. And uh, my phone has rung literally throughout the world. If I, one of our girls is actually putting little pin drops on a Google map <laughs> to see where the phone calls have come from, and we have covered a good few thousand miles. Awesome. Now you can you can tack a little one into British Columbia and Western Canada onto that onto that little map. Tell me a bit about no, about about the gang. How, how did where did this begin with the gray parrots uh, in terms of you know the uh, the profanity? Right. So it's very easy once you actually see what the, how the story got out. But it w- w- was nothing to do with us. There was never any anything about profanity with the uh, the parrots. Basically, as a national parrot sanctuary, we're taking in parrots literally. If we let the doors stay open, it would be every day. There's that much of a need in the UK for somebody to assist in the parrot side of things. And the African greys are well known for being very good at vocalising uh, and also in the person's voice. So that actually that co- catches a few culprits out that try to blame their husbands and things. And then it swears at me in their voice. That's a great uh, story. So, <clears throat> and that has actually happened. So that's quite good. And uh, But basically, just by coincidence, throughout... Uh, it was basically through the middle of COVID, uh, so 2020. That's when it very first started. And through the middle of COVID, when the UK government said we were going to be allowed to open for a, a couple of months throughout the summer, then the very lo- the local radio stations came to see us and said, what's the animals going to be like when the people come by? Right. And, and just by chance, and this is the real coincidence of it, I took five birds in from five different places around the country, and all five people actually said to me, I do apologise, but the parrot does say one or two choice words. <laughs> now, we're used to hearing that. We are used to hearing It's something that happens. I mean, I've had it today in, in, in the most unusual situation, but and I can't help but laugh. So I said to the guys, don't worry, there's no problem. But because there was five of them, it just said, that's a bit of a coincidence. It's like from different places. So we got from the north of England, they're speaking like a, a totally different dialect. To a the different south accent, yeah. <laughs> so it's a yeah. totally different accent. It's like a different country to tell you the yeah, truth. Yeah, like the Spice and, Girls, uh, you, have, you have one of each, right? That's, that's right. right, you get one of each, that's right. Yeah. And so when you talk to them all, it's like they've picked them up from different places around the globe. And uh, so I, I never thought anything. I just said, okay. Uh, and, and going back to that little story about the voices, one of the ladies came from uh, London, which is a 
quite a what we call a Cockney accent. Right. And she was actually just talking to me and saying, I do apologise, uh, he does swear, Eric does swear a little bit. And I said, that's okay, no problem. She says, nothing to do with me, it's to do with my husband and my son. They spent all his first years teaching him to swear, and now he won't stop. And just as we were filling in the paperwork, I dropped my pen and the parrot went, oh, F-A-N-L. But I actually said it in, just excuse me, it looks like it's going to just lock up on me, but it's okay. That's okay. And and actually said uh, the... Uh, the F- dropped the F-bomb. In bomb. her voice. In her voice. So it just dropped it in her voice. And I, liked, I turned and looked at her and said, are you sure? <laughs> and she said, uh, well, okay. Uh, I use it quite a lot as well. It's, so it, it, it went remarkable. from there, literally. Uh, and we put them in the room. That was no problem. We got them in the room. That, that was okay. And then a couple of days later, while I was going through some paperwork, we have a lot of volunteers here at the play, at the park. And I could hear the volunteers getting a little rowdy cleaning in one of these rooms. And I could hear the swearing. So I went actually in to tell them off. I say, you're getting a bit loud now. And there was no one in there. It was just these parrots. And then it clicked. And I thought, aye, aye, this is the ones. Yeah. These are the ones. And and when I went in, they, they did swear. But not a lot. They stopped when I went in because it could obviously it got me there. So that was no issue. That was that was fine. So you have so, five five at this point that that are that are basically your your your. I mean, they swear like sailors, but they're on their own, right? These five. Yeah, that's right, and they're yeah. fine. And and but what happens is, if a parrot swears, you will laugh. That's a bit of reinforcement, a positive reinforcement that makes them swear more. So once the parrot swore, another one laughed because they picked the laugh up as well. So then another one swore, and it was just like it was like a little working men's club. They were all just going for it. And it, it was quite good. So it was quite interesting. And then so I never thought anything at all until we did this little radio program. And when the lady said, can I go in? I said, not really. I'll not be able to actually show anything or play anything audio wise because it's just quite bad language. And she laughed. No problem at all. Did about 30 seconds in there. Went and did the actual uh, program. It, and I heard it the next morning at six o'clock on the local news, uh, local park ready to open i couldn't go into this room because the parrots are swearing a little too much that was it (laughs) that was the story and then from there it went ballistic and we've had three solid years of all around the world every single man for the first couple of weeks it was just relentless a, a little like this last couple of weeks but then throughout every single month we either got a meme or a video or a foreign agency saying how are they doing what are they doing where are they We'll pay money to hear them and things like that. And like, well, no, it's not a conversation. It's just how they are. You, you can, and you, so, yeah, you can you could sell them up for birthday greetings. And yeah, so, we, we yeah. thought we, we'd get onto this cameo. We'll get them all onto the cameo so they can be on their own celebrity birds. Yeah. And so we just said, so that's okay. That's no problem. We'll just leave it at that. That's fine. And so we we carried on as normal. What we did is we first introduced them outside. Uh, and when the people come, we just got this little bit. Of, obviously, we just had a little bit of radio going, uh, but nothing bad. And uh, literally what happened there very quickly was on the very first couple of days when we walked past, we could hear the children laughing. And as I walked past, I heard one of these parrots actually say something. So a knee-jerk reaction was I said to the guys that night, right, let's just take these out just for now because I don't know how the parents are going to respond. We might be attacked on Facebook tonight. Uh, As it happened, we wasn't. But we did let the press know then and said we took them off shore just for a few weeks because we want to see if we can mix them with some indoor birds or offshore birds to see yeah. if we can actually get them to try, a little try, bit. Try and settle them down. Yeah, try yeah, and put them in a better company. Yeah. That's what right. Is, so, is, and, Steve, and, Steve, and in all honesty, yeah. it did. And we oh, put good. them back together. They never actually stopped swearing, but it's, it, it was a little bit more diluted with, with the other noises. But they were actually starting to get to the front and sit at the front of this enclosure. And when people were going, people were swearing at them just as much as the parrots were swearing at well, the people. Of course. So it became, as you walked past, it was quite, it sounded like a quite aggressive place. Steve Nichols is with us from the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park in England, uh, home also to a parrot sanctuary, uh, including this small group of fairly badly behaved African grey parrots who tend to swear. I mean, they didn't, pick, you know, obviously they were, you know, they picked this up from the people who own them. So they were all came into the park about the same time. There are five of them. Uh, and uh, yeah, they, they they just started. They were they would swear a lot. Billy, Tyson, Eric, Jade, and Elsie, and they became a sensation. So then people were coming to the to the park and swearing at them, being sworn back. So it turned into this sort of unvirtuous circle of of parrot mimicking. Uh, Steve, what have you tried? I, mean, I should ask you, how broad is their colorful voc- vocabulary? Do they know just a few choice words, or they do they know right. many, many choice words? <laughs> yeah, choice Group one, uh, the first five that came in. 
they actually in in the uk and i think it's the same all around the world in the uk we've got three different levels of swears really yeah. yes and that is you've got the lower swear in that sometimes even children say like blooming i don't know i have no idea around the world what what other yeah, people dar, dar, look at these yeah, words yeah, sure. like if they say dawn or blooming yeah. or bloody something like that and children will say you say oh that's enough you can't be saying that but adults can say it without a problem and literally anywhere so there's that level so there's lots of them come and say that kind of thing then you've got what we class as the adult section which is your F-bomb and, and a few of the the general, if you stub your toe up against the bed when yeah. you go into the loo in the middle of the night, that kind of language, uh, which is what these were very good at. The, the, right. this is, so basically, they'd all come from places where they'd all got either irate men or women. And as it stands, there is six men and two women uh, that say this, because they say them in their voices, they like tape right. recorders, they say them exactly <laughs> which is that's taught them. Yeah. And so we can see who they are. And there's five from up north and three from down south. So so we we, we know exactly how the spread is of swearing in this country. Yeah. Uh, so that's okay. And uh, so, but then the next three that arrived, and, and the idea was the next three, they came from different places again. And uh, they only came this year. And we noticed these were the next level of swear words. These were the proper crude, the sea bomb, and oh, some geez. of the sexual connotations of when right. you say and and when and when you're walking by. I, I mean, I do apologise, but I still laugh maybe a little more because it, there's some proper intent when they say these words. Well, and, and they, they so, sound like a human. I mean, it literally sounds like someone's taunting you. From, oh from yes. the cage. yeah. Oh, without a doubt, yes. And, well, and if you're going to clean them out or if you're going to feed them yeah. and they swear at you while you're doing it, you, you either swear back or you just can't help but laugh because you you feel you don't feel offended, you, but you feel it. You say, oh, no. my Lord, that, that's a little much. So, you, so you, you, behind you, the, you tried to segregate them, right? Is that is that right? You sort of tried different methods that, to we try We've tried to... all sorts of different things, yeah, different Nothing's enrichment. Right. And, and the latest technique is we've just constructed some new enclosures okay. these constructs uh, these constructions are slightly different in the fact that they're they're narrower at the front where people are but a lot wider at the back where the parrots then can go and get out of the way and then they've got a big house a big pet house at the back there so that's heated and, and they can get out of the way altogether so we said right what we'll do is we'll put those three with the other five and put all eight with a group of 92 and the and the hope is that the last thing that the birds are going to do is come to the front for a good while. It's a big new aviary, and hopefully the general idea is that all the common birds and the common noises like microwaves and fridges and, and milk bottles and car horns and alarms and playing games, that's what you hear all the time, literally. And and some people don't realise that's what they're hearing when they start looking at these birds that they can hear their children playing the computer games because that's the noises. So the general idea is they're the very mechanical, repetitive noises. And we're hoping that these talkative parrots stop picking up their noises and slowly but surely stop telling us what to do. Right. And hopefully by the time they get to the front of the Avery, they'll have actually stopped all. That's that's the plan. It could that's go the, the other plan. way around. I was going to say, you could, could wind have, up with a hundred with a hundred. You could have a hundred telling me what to do, dropping the C-bomb in the morning. So hopefully that's not going to happen. And, and at the moment, touch wood, it... When I mean they have done they've done it twice. They did it for a Polish TV company that came and wanted to do a bit of filming. And as he was, one of the camera guys got his his flex caught on the on the side. So he went as he pulled it, as he went to say something, the yeah. parrot said it for him. <laughs> and uh, but he got it on he got it on recording. So he were actually he, yeah. although he was laughing, he, he was so amazed because he yeah, got it on microphone. Because they don't do it on cue, obviously, right? They don't need to uncue, but what they do do is, and this is a really unusual thing, and I know this because I've, I've, I've been with them for 30 odd years. If you're doing something, so if you're, if, you're, if you're just putting a screw in and your screwdriver comes off, we just, we naturally say some kind of expletive. We'll say right. something, it might be, oh, or, or sod, or something like that. Right. It could be. Well, if that's what he's learned, when he sees you do that, he'll just automatically say it before you do. Wow. Now, if he says something quite crude, <laughs> it's like when you're doing it and then you look at him as that's exactly what i was thinking mate you know yeah so it is so you can't help that and but that's the same with everything you know like so if, if you if you say something in a certain tone and, and to give you an example one of these birds uh my, my wife is working here all the time and, and we're constantly talking she was in the quarantine we was going looking at them when they, before they went out and these are just general things that happen that make us laugh and we're quite hardened to it and we were talking, I'm always one of these people that's always been on a diet or not on a diet. And yeah. and we were she was looking at the food that we're feeding the parrots and she she shouted through, Steve, have you seen these? They're only 
30 odd calories or something like that. Yeah. And as soon as she said that in that term, the pilot went, effing hell. <laughs> and it just, <laughs> and it just, even us at that point can't help but collapse. But you couldn't get them to say that. No. They just say that because it's all perfect tones as you're going through it. So if nothing else, it's a, it's a fun place and you're never lonely. Thank you so much for your time and walking me through all of that. It's, uh, yeah, who knew? Thank God. Thanks. Thanks so much. <laughs> That's okay. You take care. You might remember a few weeks back, we had George Carlin's daughter Kelly on the show to talk about her anger that someone had posted a supposedly AI-generated version of her late father performing an AI-aided comedy routine. No laughing matter, she called it. Well, a quick update on that. Carlin's estate, including uh, Kelly, of course, are now suing. Uh, They quote, the defendant's AI-generated George Carlin special is not a creative work. It is a piece of computer-generated clickbait, which detracts from the value of Carlin's comedic work and harms his reputation, reads the lawsuit filed in California last week. Now, I mentioned this because it was worth an update to something that we did a bit earlier. You can always hear that interview as well, by the way. Uh, You can find those on our podcast, which you can find anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts or at a littlemorecconversation.com. But also because it gives me a chance to play this famous Carlin rant, which is the perfect setup for our next guest. That's all your house is? It's a place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff. (laughs) Now... Sometimes, sometimes you've got to move. You've got to get a bigger house. Why? Too much stuff. You've got to move all your stuff. And maybe put some of your stuff in storage. Imagine that. There's a whole industry based on keeping an eye on your stuff. Yeah, that's one of George Carlin's most famous. Clutter. I mean, really, it's clutter. It's stuff. It's clutter. We all deal with it in some way, shape, or form. Some can tolerate it. Some can't tolerate it much at all. Uh, There was an article in the Washington Post this week about laundry chairs, right? That chair you put all your stuff on that you don't know whether you want to wash it, but you know you can't put it away yet. The laundry chair. And it got into the, the whole notion of decluttering and clutter through it. And it was... There was an interview in the in the article in the Washington Post with someone named Joseph Ferrari. He's a professor of psychology uh, and a distinguished professor at DePaul University in Chicago. He also happens to be one of the very few people on the planet who studies the psychology of clutter, why we accu- accumulate it, how it affects our mental health, why it makes us so anxious, Some, not everyone, but some of us so anxious, and the best ways to clear through all that clutter. So I thought, let's talk clutter on a Friday night. Joseph Ferrari uh, joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you. But hold on. I'm an expert on the research on procrastination, <laughs> not an expert procrastinator yeah, by yeah, all yeah. means. We never would have got this done. Listener, don't go there. We never would have got you. this done if you were, right? You just would have kept putting That's it right. on. <laughs> clutter. Um, but thank you for including me today and talking about clutter, because clutter is not the same as sporting. No. But if you're ready, I'll just go into... Sure, and yeah. I mean, I mean, every, here's the, what I'm interested in. Everyone has clutter. Everyone knows exactly what clutter is, more or less. And so few people actually research it and you do. Yes. Um, and so let's talk about what is clutter then exactly. All right. Now, it, it can be used as a verb, as a noun. Um, we talk about decluttering, eliminating that. It's cleaning out the mess. But I want the listener to know we're not talking about hoarding. I know there are TV shows and lots of kind. Hoarding is different than clutter. They're related, but they're really different. Uh, hoarding is a psychological disorder. Clutter has not elevated to that, that level yet. The, the simplest way I look at it that I've learned from the ICD people is that hoarding, you have lots of the same stuff. It is uh, vertical. Clutter, it's horizontal. You just have a lot of stuff. All right. So the hoarder will buy toilet paper, toilet paper, toilet paper, toilet paper, toilet paper. The clutterer may have some of that, but other things as well. So think of a breadth and versus depth, if you would. So they're really kind of different, although they are related. Yeah. But what does clutter mean? Well, we, def- we, Roster and I, define clutter as an overabundance of possessions that create collectively create chaotic and disorderly living spaces. So when Roster and I discuss this or research this topic, and we have about a dozen publications so far on this topic, um, we break it down into four areas. How does the clutter impact the livability of your space? All right. How does it, which is what most people would think, obviously, does it cause you emotional, maybe distress? How does it impact the relationship with others? Something we don't often think about with clutter. And then 
Financial well-being, does it impact on your financial well-being? Americans, United States people, have over $7,000 worth of unused stuff in their home. $7,000 of things that they've bought that they don't use. I that, can believe that's it. a lot. And then people say, I, you know, my credit card is maxed out. I don't have money. Well, why are you buying all these things? And the problem is that we become attached to all this abundance. The, God, Christ, never said, don't live like a pauper. He said, just don't be attached to it. We've had this notion that we have to have more, more, more. And if I have more, 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 as Gloria Gaynor used to sing, uh, my life is happier. And we've actually found the more clutter, the less psychological home people set, feel, and the less life satisfaction they report. Really? So here we live There's in this a, country. a direct correlation between those two things, between having too much stuff and not being happy. That's right. Uh, negatively correlated, if you would. Mm -hmm. The more the clutter, the less happiness, if you would. And that's interesting because people claim, I have to have more. But our culture, at least here in the States, makes it so easy to do this. You don't have to get off your couch. You can turn to the channel and with a little, have a powerful thumb, that's all you need, and you can click, I want to buy, I want to buy. And we're going to bring it to you the next day, and we won't even charge you shipping. You know, think about this. It's right? so easy. You're right. So easy, and we wonder why people just buy. All right, and buy, buy, buy. Because again, we're in this culture where needs have become, excuse me, wants have become needs. See, you don't need an iPhone 15. You want it, but we make it sound like you have to. You got to have air, water, food, iPhone 15. Where, right, does so this, yeah, where, where does the stress come from? Where, where, why is it stressful to people? Well, some people don't mind it at all. Some people love living in a mess, but other people find it incredibly stressful to have Which is, again, around. why it's very subjective that way. That's very good. Well, there's a number of psychological qualities, uh, consequences of having clutter. We, As I mentioned, the more clutter, the lower the psychological well-being, the lower people have reported in our studies, the less happy they are. There's more mood disorders. What does that mean? Well, in a severe case, that's depression. But, you know, they're, they're more upset, more uh, not angry. That's a negative emotion that way. But, you know, just uh, I'm not happy. Unhappiness, if you would. Uh, negative images of themselves, the more the person has clutter. Uh, you know, they, you'll hear people say, yeah, I just can't get rid of things. I can't make, they devalue themselves, if you would. We didn't do this study, but there was some data that someone did that showed there's an overconsumption of unhealthy food with the more clutter you have. Really? This, this to me is the couch potato stereotype image of the person who's just sitting there buying and eating the junk food and eating the Doritos. You know, I, and I don't mean to derogatory. I'm not bashing any person. I'm yeah. just saying when I hear overconsumption of unhealthy food, I think of the person who's not being healthy. Yeah. And again, lower quality of life. The right. question is, why is it hard to declutter? Joseph Ferrari is with us. Uh, we're talking clutter this half hour. He's a professor of psychology and a distinguished professor at DePaul University in Chicago. So we've talked about clutter, what it is, what kind of impact it can have. And now, of course, when we've talked a lot about this in the past, I don't know, five, six years, decluttering. And I've heard you talk about this before. Uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of barriers to decluttering. And you talked about something called the three lacks as well. But I'll let you tell it in your own time. Sure. Thank you, sir. Um, yeah. Why is it so hard for people to declutter? Well, there are the three lacks, but there are other reasons. There's may, it may be emotionally stressful to declutter. Now, don't think of that as only negatively emotions. Maybe the person has the object and by touching it, bring, you know, holding on to it, it triggers past emotions that are negative. So I don't want to deal with it. So I put it aside, but it could also trigger positive emotions. You remember that trip that person in your life. Oh, I remember. I don't want to get rid of that. So it can be emotionally stressful because you want, because of the emotions that it triggers, either positive or negative. Something people don't often talk about that I think is interesting is that there may be multiple users or multiple decision makers in terms of decluttering that object. In other words, it may not be up to you to, to throw it out, to get yeah. rid of it. Don't throw away your wife's collection of X. You know, I mean, well, that's exactly what a, a scenario, yeah. example I was going to give you. Years yeah. ago, before we were married, we've been married 39, 38, a bunch of years <laughs> to the same person. Uh, my wife uh, will still remember the time I was helping her move from an apartment. I picked up something. I think it was a toothpick holder. She says there was a salt and 
pepper chip. I wanted to get rid of this thing. Well, did it cause a fight? All right. There's one thing. Because it wasn't mine to make that decision, was her point. And I'm thinking, but this is clutter. This is who wants this. Okay. It's not worth it. So, one reason you may not be able to declutter is it ain't up to you. And maybe that others are involved in that decision. And that can cause conflict. And then, as you mentioned, what I call the three lacks. One thing you hear from people is, I lack time. Love to declutter, but I don't have the time to do it. Well, so COVID comes along, and we hear in the media, as if you may remember, not too long ago, people are going into their closets and their junk drawers, and they're decluttering. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, it was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So Roster and I contact these ICD folk, the leadership, and we say, we want to do a study. This is like a little focus group here. Tell us more about it. Are you finding people decluttering more? And they said, no. Oh, absolutely not. The same people who told us, I don't have the time, I'd love to do it, are now saying, well, now we're home, now we're forced to, now we have nowhere to go, and they still don't declutter. So that's one of the, remember, human beings are great excuse makers. We've been excuse makers since the dawn of man. And so lack of time is kind of an excuse. Lack of resources. People say, I'd love to get rid of things, but I don't know what to do with it. I don't know where you know to, to put it. My kids don't want it. Uh, Nobody wants this stuff. I say, the world ain't about you. The world is about all of us, you see? And so if your kids don't want it, give it to another family who might want it. Maybe there was an earthquake, a fire, a hurricane. There was a tornado, something that wiped out a major flood, a family, and they have nothing now. They'll take your china. They'll love to have that silverware. Your kids don't want it, but another family can. My God, can't we pay it forward? Can we give it to other people? Well, there are, of course, goodwill and Salvation Army. So when people say they don't know what to do or where to give it, uh, open your eyes or listen a little bit. You're going to hear, give it time. You're going to hear people who need things. They'd love to have that couch. It's still good. It works. But you, you, you know, you don't know what to do with it. Right. Uh, and lack of ability. This takes me back to the ICD people. There is a ma- mantra, and if you want, I'll go there if we have time. The touch it and keep it if it gives you joy. Have you heard of that? Absolutely. Yes, okay. indeed. I, I think you pointed out that the joy was actually a mistranslation from the Japanese. It's a, yes, Japanese you, yes, happiness, you, which is very interesting. But you yes, have I listened mean, to my stuff. Yes. Even touch it. Let's go into. Let's look at that whole expression and yes. why that expression is really inaccurate. Because that's where lack of ability comes into. I think. Yeah. All right, this expression says, touch it and keep it if it gives you joy. Touch it. Okay. Dr. Roster, who's a consumer psychologist, will tell you that companies will pay for you to be have objects on eye level for you to pick them up and touch it. They want you to touch it because the research shows if you touch something in the store, you're more likely to buy it. So you're more likely to keep it. And the ICD experts, these decluttering co- co- coaches, will tell you, the first thing to do is not to declutter, but to organize. Right. Take your closet and realize, wow, I got 15 pairs of blue pants. Wow, there's eight spatulas in the drawer. You know, organize it first. And then you bring in, they would like you to bring them in, but I say bring in a good friend and have the friend hold it up and say, do you really need this pair of pants? Don't touch it, in other words. That's right. Because oh. if you touch it, you're going to keep it. And, and that's contrary to that expression. And then bring it joy. You are correct. When that line and that mantra first came out, a lot of reporters contacted Roster and myself. And I remember talking to a Japanese reporter. And I said to him, you know, I I, I struggle with keeping it joy because joy is a deep emotion in psychology. It's not the same as happiness. Happiness is more of a mood. It's temporary. Joy. We sing at Christmas, joy to the world, yes. not happiness to the world. So there's something deeper there. And the guy said, yes, you're absolutely right. The literal translation is happiness, but joy sells books. Indeed. I, I, I Yes, there are many books, many, many books. Uh, very interesting. Very right? interesting. So, well, the psychology of this is all interesting. For listeners who want to declutter then, yeah. who, who then see themselves in what you're discussing and want to declutter, where do you begin? I guess organizing is, is probably, that's an incredible first step, I guess. Just <laughs> put, it really all, put it all, organize it all and see what you have too much of. Yeah, that's uh, what I learned from the ICD people is the places we have the most clutter is in uh, the uh, the closet, the kitchen and books. Most people, that's the big three big issues. So they would tell you, don't run out to the container stores and buy containers, but first organize. Let, and that's that's informative, right? That's very powerful. I see, wow, I do have, you know, seven blenders and I only need 
one, maybe two. You know, do I nearly need all these other things? They would also tell you, don't just give it away because somebody told you you have to give it away. If it's really important to you, hold on to that snow globe. We're not saying to people, don't have anything. We're saying, start thinking about that. And I would say to the person, yeah, organize, maybe bring in a friend, find out places that are need, that need your things. Do some of the techniques my wife does. She gently shops our house when it comes Christmas time. She'll buy something new. And for the, we have three children for each kid. And then she gives them something in the house that's related. So slowly can pass things along to people. Every time the kids come and visit, they have to bring something home to their home. They don't visit anymore. But anyway, they. (laughs) I was going to say, here, have the dining room table. Uh, The, uh, I guess the, I mean what what one of the things that that I think has become a huge problem obviously and we talk about it now is is storage space store I mean people spend millions of dollars not individually but collectively on storage lockers places to keep more of their clutter to declutter by just shoving it out of the way and that seems like a bit of a a bit of a bad idea. You're absolutely right. You're right. I have to w- admit, though, I do like watching. I don't like reality shows, but that's and that's I don't know how much reality is. But I do watch the one that's on the storage containers. Yeah, because I do find it interesting. But um, you're right. People are paying more, more money to keep their stuff someplace, and I, I just think you know we don't need all these items in the world. Hindu monks spend what is it seven years to get down to only two robes two bowls, and two spoons. That's all the possessions you're allowed. And I tell people, imagine if you had to go on a cruise and that's all you could bring because people bring lots of stuff. You know, um, no, we're told we have to have a lot. You don't have to have a lot. Don't create, um, don't collect relics, make relationships. You know, Um, it's not about the stuff you have. It's the memories that you want to have. So I think that's what we want to create with people. Uh, Some seniors will often tell me, you know, my kids, uh, they don't declutter and they leave this burden of decluttering to their children. Well, I say, no, man, what a great gift you can give your children. All right. By decluttering that those are some of the things to do. Uh, Give Look at the positive side. Keep what you want. No one says you have to live like a pauper. I'm not even saying that. But on the other hand, you don't have to have overabundance of things. Yeah, uh, We have to have enough to live with. And, and take it from someone who knows. Uh, Joseph Ferrari, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. 